On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday morning, and that very evening he came to his disciples. Though the doors were locked, there he was in their midst. And his first words to them were, Peace be with you. Why did our Lord say this to them? Perhaps he had startled them a bit, appearing out of nowhere. And that's why he said, peace be with you. Or perhaps it was on account of all that they had been through. Their frayed nerves, their sorrow over his death, their fear that they might be next. Perhaps. And yet, his words go deeper still. The last words that Jesus had spoken to his disciples before his death, he had said on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, You will all fall away from me this night, he said to them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. To which Peter responded in his typical headstrong way, Though all fall away from you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to Peter, Amen, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. To which Peter responded, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. The last time their Lord had spoken to them, he told them that they would all fall away. And taking stock in themselves, they, in effect, called their Lord a liar. Each disciple said that he was prepared to die rather than deny him. They were strong. Their willpower was sufficient. So they thought. But only a short while later, as their Lord's hands were being bound by the soldiers, each disciple, one by one, forsook his master and fled into the darkness. And likewise, just as Jesus had said, Peter denied him three times before the rooster crowed. Not only did the disciples fail their Lord and fall away, they had utterly failed in their appraisal of themselves. They thought themselves strong, when in fact they were weak. They thought that their willpower was sufficient, when in the blink of an eye it was their willpower that turned them away from Christ and sent them running into the darkness. In truth, their strength was weakness, and their will was precisely the problem. If true of the original disciples, then also true of us. We do not fear, love, and trust in Jesus above all things. And so we too fail as disciples at this most fundamental point. In the Apology or Defense of the Augsburg Confession, the Lutheran reformer Philip Melanchthon writes this gem. 
all Scripture, all the church, cries out that the law cannot be satisfied. Therefore, starting to fulfill the law does not please on its own account, but on account of faith in Christ. Otherwise, the law always accuses us. For who loves and fears God enough? Who has enough patience to bear the troubles brought by God? Who does not frequently doubt whether human affairs are ruled by God's counsel or by chance? Who does not frequently doubt whether he is heard by God? Who is not frequently enraged because the wicked enjoy a better life than the righteous? Because the righteous are oppressed by the wicked? Who fulfills his own calling? Who loves his neighbor as himself? Who is not tempted by lust? Melanchthon goes on to say, the flesh distrusts God, trusts in present things, seeks human aid in trouble, even contrary to God's will. It flees from suffering, which it ought to bear because of God's commands. It doubts God's mercy, and so on. The Holy Spirit in our hearts fights against such tendencies in order to suppress and kill them and produce new spiritual motives. And here Melanchthon is simply echoing what St. Paul had written some 1,500 years before, the flesh desires what is contrary to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. When our risen Lord first came to his failed and fallen disciples and stood in their midst, he said to them, Peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side. His words were in their ears the sweetest absolution. The disciples had failed him. They had failed in their appraisal of themselves. Peace. Peace be with you, he said. And in showing them his hands and his side, he was no doubt proving to them that it truly was him risen from the dead in his body. That's fine. But he's doing something more than that, isn't he? He's directing them to his wounds, to the source of all forgiveness, to the source of his words of peace. When Jesus had entered Palm Sunday, entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday precisely one week earlier, he had wept and said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And now he shows his disciples his hands and his side, saying once more, Peace be with you. By his wounds, they were healed. And so are we. His nail-pierced hands and spear-pierced side are those things that make for our peace. To the Colossians, Paul wrote, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. 
In other words, in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus, we see that all our debts have been forgiven. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And so when his hands were nailed to the cross, so was our sin. So was the entire record of our debt. And there on the cross, God put our debt away forever. So Jesus showed them his hands. John tells us that after Jesus had died on the cross, when the soldier came and pierced his side with the spear, blood and water came out. And John perceives this to be a sign that from the spear-pierced heart of Jesus flowed the two sacraments, water and blood, the water of holy baptism and the blood of holy communion, both testifying that our sins are forgiven. So Jesus showed them his side. The peace that Jesus spoke to his first disciples and the peace that he now speaks to us is the peace that flows from his cross, from his hands, and from his side. As Jesus had said, peace be with you. He showed them his hands and his side, and then he said, peace be with you a second time, and said, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. The small catechism, as you probably remember, calls this the office of the keys. The special authority which Christ has given to his church to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. In breathing into them the Holy Spirit, he breathes into his disciples the breath of life. Once dead in their trespasses, they are now alive. And the work of their mouths, forgiving and retaining sins, is the work of the Spirit. It's worth noting that it is equally the work of the Holy Spirit both to forgive and to retain sins. It is the work of the Holy Spirit when, as the small catechism states, the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve the sins of those who repent of their sins and want to do better. This is just as valid and certain even in heaven as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself. The absolution and peace that Jesus spoke to his first disciples and his absolution and peace that he spoke to us this very morning flows from the cross, from the hands and the side of Jesus, and it is the word and testimony of the Holy Spirit. Peter, who of course had denied Christ, and sins so terribly against Christ, would later write, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. 
In other words, and according to Peter, the death and resurrection of Jesus have become the pattern of our lives as Christians. Just as Jesus died for our sins, so we now die to our sins. And just as Jesus is risen and lives, so we now rise and live to righteousness. For Peter, the statement, by his wounds we are healed, means more than forgiveness. It also means that which flows from forgiveness, namely, that we are conformed into the image of Christ, both his death and his resurrection, to die to sin and to live to righteousness. According to Peter, that's what it means to be healed. Our risen Lord Jesus came to his disciples in the upper room. And he comes to us as well. He promises, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Present with us, Jesus shows us his wounds. Though not in the way of Thomas, who saw Jesus' wounds with his eyes and presumably touched them with his hands, unless he got squeamish about that. Jesus shows us his wounds through word and sacrament, in the preaching of his cross, and in the giving of his body and the shedding of his blood for us. In response to seeing Jesus' wounds, Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And that blessing belongs to us. For these things are written, not merely as historical record and fact. These things are written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.